We are ready to get started today. How is everybody doing out there? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in to the Focus Compounding Podcast. Sitting alongside Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going over there? It's going very well, Andrew. Is it going? Mm -hmm. It's going. Well, great. We want to thank everybody for tuning in. If you do want to get access to our investing website where people write about ideas and individuals and both professional investors all over the world, feel free to go to focuscompounding.com and be sure to sign up using the promo code, which is podcast, and they'll take $10 off the subscription price and definitely as long as you stay a member. And also there's an annual method there as well, which some people choose, uh, but that's completely up to you. So for today, we're going to be talking about stock write-ups mm -hmm. and you've been writing for a long time. So who else they asked this, right? Yeah, I've been writing uh, about stocks for 13 years, I think. I was going to say, somebody actually wrote in um, the other day. He said that he's, he's been reading your first write or first publication he came across was 12 years ago. Yep. So that's, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's very, the, the very first things I wrote on the internet was in 2005. Yeah, you were certainly the pioneer. So you're, you're a good person to chat about. People this. were writing on the internet before 2005. <laughs> I know that's hard to believe when you were. Uh, how old were you there in, in 2005? We're not going to bring up my age. Okay. <laughs> that's really funny. But, anyways, so, so stock write offs, all right. And obviously, you're very good at it. You write, you've written a bunch of 10,000 word write ups. And you've, you've said, too, that those oh, were the, the new, easier ones. The, the, letters, the tough yeah. ones are the, the shorter ones you find the writing up for the for the 10,000 words was uh, not hard the the research and stuff that went into it was a, a lot harder yeah, yeah but I think you're just a really good writer okay so I'm gonna give you a good compliment I mean you All did right. say that you'd probably be a journalist if you weren't into investing I enjoy writing yeah that's We're, true I, I I think that I like that I can uh, both write about investing and do investing I think I said that before that I don't think I'd want to ever just write about something that's not investing but I also don't think I'd ever want to invest um, without having some element of writing about yeah. it, even though it could just be, you know, Warren Buffett writes an annual letter, right? Yeah. So even if it's just a little bit of, of that sort of thing, I write the the memos, they're very short, but I get something out of doing that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it definitely, it's, it kind of like pounds it into your brain too. I think it's good intellectual mm -hmm. uh, exercise for sure. And obviously you're, you're really good at it. So what do you think, if you had to boil it, okay, so investment write-up, there's probably a lot of parts that could go into it. Right. There's some that are very long. There's some that are more concise. Sure. Mm -hmm. What do you think is sort of like the main points that people should hit on? I mean, the best write ups I've seen is um, and I'm maybe um, lazy in this regard, but is probably like a ton about the business. And then right. maybe like the last couple paragraphs talking about the valuation. It's more okay. focused on the actual business. OK. Um, so what do you think about that or what do you well, think? Well, we talked about what your literally your favorite write up was probably. Right. Yeah. It was um, by I Charlie. Some number. Num, four seven nine. Number. Is like that what that, it is? Yeah. Four seven nine. I don't know if yeah, that's the exact number. But on yeah. Valley Investors Club, he wrote up um, NVR Homes, mm -hmm. which is I think one of the best write-ups on the site or like return wise it's on yeah it's, it's definitely up well, there that stock's an amazing yes, yeah thing, but yeah. i think his work uh, it was like 900 words it wasn't yep. even it was under a thousand mm -hmm. words but um but yeah i did like it and he pretty much was just laid out the investment cases he didn't the really first sentence is nvr is a home builder yeah i don't even think he talked too much even more about the business other than mm -hmm. that and then the fact that they use options to purchase yep, land which is the and, key thing about them yeah um, that makes them different from all other home builders yeah but i think from that it was like he the biggest takeaway for me was he just focused on the key drivers yep. to the investment case. Mm -hmm. Everything else was, you know, whatever. And one thing that I think makes a good write up and this is something that you've talked to me about a lot is being intellectually assertive. Right. Is what you say mm -hmm. where you state the facts yes. instead of sort of molding it in a way, if that's the best way to put it, okay. but just stating the facts. And if 
people agree with you, they're going to agree with you. If they're not going to agree with you, they're not going to agree with you. Right. Because they're going to agree or disagree with the facts. Yeah. And not agree or disagree with you as a person or the way you presented it or whatever. Yeah. And that, that is something that has, that happens a lot with write-ups where we were talking about something and I was like this, this um, first paragraph is like, you're writing yourself into what's actually the discussion. And then here's where it's actually facts about the business. And so you think about it. I, I was saying, you know, Buffett, Buffett has said this where he has in mind a particular person when he's writing it. His sister. Yeah. And that's a really good way of doing it. Of think, Because thinking it from the perspective of what do they care about? Yeah. And what they care about is just getting a good stock idea mm-hmm. explained to them. And so you just imagine you're sitting across the table from them talking to them about the stock. What would you say? How would you start it off that way? Sure. Instead of trying to make it sound good or something, you know, which yeah. is what a lot of people um, go into that way. And, and then there's just issues of style and stuff. I mean, I will write very long write-ups and that that's not because they're better. That's just that that's a way of doing it. How long I, would it take you to write 10,000 words? Um, that's you know, a good question. I was pretty, um, I was reading, I think, I can't remember if you tweeted it, Jeff Bezos or Bezos, I don't mm-hmm. know how to pronounce last name. I've heard both ways. Okay. I say Bezos usually, <laughs> but I don't want someone to tweet me. But he he was tweeting, or he tweeted out, I think he tweeted out, maybe it was on Instagram, but just talking, or maybe it was in his annual letter, actually, is when he talked about it, about writing the annual letters mm-hmm. and how a good piece of writing takes weeks of preparation. So you first write it out, right. and then you think about it, and then you know you show, or mm-hmm. you let people read it, who give you feedback. And, and it was almost... Um, I don't want to say motivating, but it was almost like, wow, okay. So if he's taking a long time to, to write this brilliant guy's taking mm-hmm. a long time, putting all this thought in, I guess I shouldn't feel that bad if it takes me more than, you know, a couple hours to come up with a good piece of writing. Mm-hmm. But the point that I think he's kind of making there that people may not know is that most of the writing takes place, not when you're at the keyboard writing it in terms of like what's most important in terms of uh, what other people are going to get out of it and how effective it is. Is like, what's the idea and how do you want to put it and things like that? Sure. The actual writing of it can be pretty quick. Um, but uh, what you're trying to say and, and how best to get it across are things that, that can, you know, eh, they're the things that take place outside of that. And sometimes you have a good idea for that. Sometimes you kind of have to force it. Um, you know, we, we said that I do the uh, weekly memo. The weekly memo comes out regardless. So if I have a really good idea of how to put it and stuff by, by Sunday, then it's a better memo than in the weeks when I don't have that. When do you start writing it? Uh, I try to start writing it very early on, but I've had ones where I've completely discarded <laughs> uh, discarded what it was um, a lot of times. I mean, I could tell you some of the things that have been changed about them. For one, they always start out more theoretical than they end up being. Yeah. Always, yeah. And then always gets cut down into something more practical and simpler that way. How long does it take you to write one? On average, would you say? It takes a while. Yeah, I bet. There's a lot of thought. I would say that a memo doesn't take, is not shorter than a write-up of a stock that I do. Yeah. Right. So stock write-ups I've done for focus compounding can be, I don't know, four to six times longer than than a um, memo by by words, but it's not any um, longer by the amount of time that I put into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, it's hard to say because you said, like, how long does it take to do the, uh, those 10,000 word um, newsletter ones? That could easily take 10 days. Yeah. Uh, but I know that one time I wrote something that's like 13,000 or more, and it was within one day. So it depends, you know, but that's all one topic. Yeah. And there's not a lot of, you know, diff- the, the big thing is like getting the idea and then trying to get across. So let's talk about some of the sort of specific things about a write-up that um, can make it more effective and the things that you could do wrong, right? Sure. So what have you found is 
what what are what natural instincts or whatever that you might have turn out to be not the right way to write something well i mean you a what you just said before you're writing for them not for yourself okay sometimes it, it's hard to kind of remember that when you're writing it you, you right. it kind of makes sense in your head but then you got to picture it that you're reading it from somebody else's perspective mm-hmm. um one thing that people do that i think they shouldn't do is they quote a lot and like okay. from like transcripts mm-hmm. they'll take like a couple paragraphs and mm-hmm. pretty much say go read this for yourself when really it's a summary you should summarize it take the key points and then put it into the write-up for them to read yeah that's a great thing about your you know your favorite write-up there on mvr as i recall i don't think there's any quote in there no, at all no i don't think that, which means he's putting everything into his own words about yeah. what you need to know, which mm-hmm. is usually a way of doing it much shorter, a way of compressing it. Yeah. So why do you think people do quote from things? That's just probably quicker, easier. Quicker maybe. than easier, you think? Yeah, probably. But I think, again, it, it's you're being talking about being intellectually assertive. Mm-hmm. You should take the facts from there, the way you see it. You're the one writing right. it up. And then, you know, put it in the paper. Don't just copy three paragraphs from an earnings release, or I mean from a, a transcripts or whatever. Mm-hmm. To, to do that. Yeah, I think it's related. We talk a lot about like actively reading stuff. Yeah. And there's an element of that in it too about the difference between like active and passive in terms of how you're presenting it. Because um, yeah, you do see some things where people have put a lot in um, which is sort of notes from something almost, you know, that way. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, I could read the investor presentation for myself or whatever. You yeah, know, or you I could, could just read link the 10K. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Another thing is... Um, what do they say? A picture tells a thousand words. Yes. So what they say, mm-hmm. I like pictures. So yeah. like graphs, for example, like if you're going to do like a revenue breakdown of a company, absolutely make that on a graph. I think that's pretty good. I think yeah. if you're going to, um, instead of one thing I've been trying not to do is, um, instead of just, uh, going over like, uh, historical financial statements, like pre-populating it into mm-hmm. Excel, just make a graph out of it. I just think it looks better. Yeah. Quite honestly. And it's you, easy to take something from Excel and make it into a graph. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I think that makes a good, a good write up or like if you're going to do, you know, certain multiples or comparables, mm-hmm. make that into a graph form as well. I think that's good. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but, but I guess the whole point of doing a write up is you're trying to do what you're trying to convey mm-hmm. your idea in a summarized form. Right. Of the stock idea. Yeah, you know. and so let's talk about that specifically. So normally you're not really just, saying, at least the write-ups that we're doing and that we're reading, are not just normally saying, here's a company, let me tell you about it. They're kind of pitching the idea. Yeah, in a way. In yeah. a way, yeah. Now some of the things I do for Focus Compounding actually are saying, here's something I looked at, I didn't like it. Right. You know, a lot of, I, I've said it, and actually people have emailed in, where are you going to, yeah, yeah they, they, they love that. That's yeah. the, probably the best, the ones that you say that you're not interested in, why you're not Which interested. Which is interesting that they say that but it, it it's a good example of that and it's a good thing about like how it helps me um to look at that stock and, and analyze it is to put down why i passed on it and stuff because it's so easy to have kind of fuzzy thinking if you don't write things down sure about oh i just didn't like this this company i just didn't have the you know i just don't like this industry or whatever and then you throw it out without saying you know why that is and so there's usually pretty specific ways on the those write-ups, which are just an initial one, like I said, those are like, um, here's my first thoughts on this company. And then if I, my write-up says, you know, it, this is more interesting than most stocks, then I'll follow up on it. But most of the time I'll say, you know, so I'm probably not going to follow up on this stock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. And then when you, what, how do you think people should do their valuation work in stock pitches to just kind of ba- make it summarized and kind of keep it simple in that regard? Or My favorite is probably... Um, 
say what the. I mean, at the end of your mm-hmm. your uh, singular diligence, it was just pretty much a snapshot of like, yeah. your appraisal value and, appraisal and value. the multiple, and you kind of did it out that way. Yeah, and there's good and bad about that. I think the bad thing we did an exact appraisal value. I think people sometimes get too caught up on the appraisal value that we did, and why we included the appraisal value is we actually want to show you kind of the formula of what we were using. So what we wanted to show you really is we're using a multiple of EV to sales or something, right? Sure. It's not that we want to show you it's worth $68.73, but it's that we think it's worth $68.73. And if you disagree with us, okay, but you have to disagree with one of the points that we're making here. You know, we can't we can't just have different opinions that aren't based in any way in the facts. So if you say, okay, well, I don't think they'll ever hit that margin. Okay, well, then put that in and then you get a much lower number. Or I don't think that the market will ever pay that kind of multiple. Okay, so take 20% off if you think that the multiple will be 10 times instead of 12 times. And you can do the math yourself that way instead of just coming up with the number. The actual number that we had, that I think was the least important part of it. I think the important part of it is the part underneath where we said the appraisal method. And we actually did the math on that to show mm-hmm. you how it, how it could happen. You think people, if they don't have a blog, they should all do a little stock write-up for themselves? Yes. Well, Warren Buffett said, you know, write on a piece of paper why I'm buying these shares. I yeah. absolutely think so. I've said many, many times, I don't know how many times I've said in this podcast, when you read the 10K, at the end, you have to write down an appraisal that you have for the stock. Yeah. And I mean it as a guess. I'm not saying that that after you've read the 10K, in some cases after you've read the 10K, you really feel that you can value the company. But in some, you'll say, I have no idea. But you have a better idea now than you did before you ever read it. Sure. So write it down. And then... Come back. You can adjust it either way after that. You can go back. If you wrote down that you thought it was worth $68.73, and then why did you think that? Then when you learn other information, you can go back and say, oh, I was wrong about the margin. And now you can adjust your appraisal value, Mm -hmm. right? But most people, they read the 10K or whatever. They don't write any number down, right? Don't you think that that's true? I mean, most people I talk to, they don't have a number at the end of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what it does is, again, because all knowledge in this business is cumulative, Mm -hmm. right? So even if you don't invest in it, it's still still good that you're Mm -hmm. learning about it. I think what it does, is it kind of closes the book on, you know, that sort of, that sort of, um, exercise i guess you could say okay like it's a good way just to conclude reading the annual report and then when you do come back to it or the 10k and then when you do come back to it like you said you can adjust accordingly Mm -hmm. but i do agree with you i think that's a good way to do it for sure yeah and so it crystallizes your thinking that way into this is what this is what i think and why i think it yeah and so you're asking about like what i look for in a write-up what i look for is really like maybe the three or so key assumptions that you're making do you care how long it is no um, several of the best write-ups that I've read, uh, best in the sense that they're most useful to me, were very short, very short. Um, and, a, and a couple of the person didn't invest in the stock. But I don't need to know that to use it for my purposes, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I need to know what assumptions they're making and what effect that has. And sometimes they'll have an assumption that I disagree with, and they passed on it for that reason. You know, They'll say all this stuff and they'll say, but I don't like the management or something. Okay, well, then I investigate and if I think the management's okay. Then, you know, if that was their only problem, then, then this might be an interesting stock. Or, you know, I've read somewhere they say, well, there's no catalyst. Okay, well, I run the same numbers, but sometimes I get a very different number there. Yeah, sure. Just because of the probability. Often the probability that when someone says there's no catalyst, if you do the probability per year that it would happen over a certain holding time, when they say no catalyst, even if there's a 10% chance there's a catalyst each year over that time, that can add up to a meaningful sure. uh, addition yeah. to the value, right? And yeah. it could be 20. Sometimes people will say there's no catalyst when really maybe there's a one in three chance that something will happen this year. And they'll say, well, something probably won't happen this year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you're going to own it for seven years, 
suddenly that's a very decent probability that something's going to happen and at a decent annual return, right? So there'll be things like that. And that's why I really think you put down the assumptions and the quantify it in some way about what those assumptions are, uh, how much effect they're having on the value that you're getting for it. And I do usually like to see more than one um, method used, to be honest. To value the company? Yeah, I like to see some check on it. Yeah. You know, to to check your work in like two two sorts of different ways or whatever. So you want to expand on that? So yeah, like, so for example, some, like if you're going to grow revenue and then sort of or and develop or some EBITDA or whatever metric you use and then you, you, you know, come up with an appraisal value mm-hmm. like that. And so, then what do you think another good way is to do like uh, do comparable transactions and right. You know, One that's really like, obvious is they wrote about a company that has a lot of NOLs and has net cash. So there's a few ways of looking at it. One, the stock's trading for less than net cash, and it's cash flow positive. Uh-huh. That's one way. Sure. So should it trade for less than net cash? A lot of people would say no. Okay, so that's one way to say yeah. it's it's not too expensive, at least. Of course, yeah. And maybe it's cheap. Um, two, how many of the NOLs can be used? That was the other way to look at it. Okay, so then we go out 30 years. We do, you know, in this case, 15 years or whenever the NOLs would expire, and we work back um, from there yeah. and kind of discount it back or whatever, and say, okay, what? How much of the like present value of that today? You know, right? That you, they could actually use up. Okay, that's one way of doing it. Third way is um, okay. They acquire something and they get to use those NOLs. What would the PE be on this thing now if it wasn't if they bought something and they didn't pay taxes this year? Yeah, those are three ways right there. And that's pretty simple. That's I'm sure that wasn't one of my longer write ups. But if all three of them are giving you the same sort of answer, it's then like it's a really attractive. Check in a way, mm-hmm. your own version of it. Yeah, you never want to do one where the ones that worry me are like um, you find one peer. And you say, okay, yeah. they're going to be at the EBITDA multiple that one peer was. Yeah, sure. Or it, worse than that is like, okay, their EBITDA, their EBITDA margin is 5% now. I think in two years, it'll be 10%. Yeah. And the market's already going to eight times EBITDA now, but they have this competitor that's 16 times. So it's yeah. going to be 16 times. Yeah, well, you sure. do those numbers, but you think think about the odds of that, right? Well, so, just, yeah, sure. Right. And there's all guesswork there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's an important part of it. I mean, that is the thing that's missing from write-ups generally. Um, that I'm okay with because I don't think it's something that people can do that well. But really, when they put those assumptions on there, in a sense, if they want to be rigorous about it, they need to be talking about what's the probabilities of this happening. Now, no one ever talks about the probabilities. No, I don't think that they do usually. But, but the good news is, as a reader of a write-up, you don't need that because yeah. if you have the assumptions without the probabilities, you can go off and do the work yourself sure. and try to figure it out. So you can use something that they don't discuss the probabilities at all, and then you can try to guess at that and stuff. You know. And, and I think that what you really just need are the key assumptions that they're putting into it to see if it's, you know, whether it's an attractive stock. And your last memo, anything times zero, was sort of more probability yeah, based. Yeah, it was. So it, what do you think is a good, I guess, uh, way for a lot of people to sort of go down that path if they don't have that in their investor toolkit? Well, that's a really good question. This is what Jeff and well, I have been working well, on we were talking about 5, a, we, 5 a.m. in the morning every <laughs> during the week. We were talking about reading uh, Fortune's Formula, right? Yeah. Because I mentioned that in the memo. Um, so we talked about kind of the different, so what the memo had discussed is, okay, let's say that there's two stocks and what you'll often hear from someone is they say, well, this, sure, the stock is riskier than some other stocks, but it has all this upside and stuff. So they're kind of doing probabilities. They're kind of doing what they, um, they're kind of waiting what they expect the value will be of this. Like they say, okay, well, this thing's going to go up 50% or something. And I think there's a 50% chance of that happening. And that will make up for the fact that it's riskier. Okay. But the point in the memo was, okay, let's say one thing has a 0.5% chance of going belly up this year, and the other has a 5% chance. 
And that sounds extreme, but like the two things that I gave as examples, it really could be that kind of difference. When someone says it's riskier, they could mean it's 10 times riskier in cases like that. Sure. But when you run that over a few years, what you realize is you can't be a long-term investor in the thing that has a 5% chance of going belly up every year. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't work. Sure, it makes sense. If you ever try to hold as long as Warren Buffett does, the odds actually favor that this business will go bankrupt by the time that you, right? And the other one is nowhere near that, Yeah. right? But so that's the kind of thing that's difficult in a write-up because when you just say, well, yes, it's riskier, but I think the payoff is bigger, right? The the reward will be bigger for this, right? Mm -hmm. But that's the kind of thing that they'll make the assumption and be honest about it usually. And then you can kind of assess that. We had some really good write-ups on, on Focus Compounding recently, GameStop, Intercom, right? They have some risks and stuff. It'll be discussed what those risks are, what the assumptions are in there. You can look for yourself to try to figure that out, right? Which one do you think is the riskier stock? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I think the GameStop is the riskier I you're gonna say, I th- business. I think you're going to say uh, in terms of whether we talk about what the price is and things like that, yeah. it gets a little more complicated. But yeah, I think it's the riskier business. For one thing, it's a retailer, which are almost always riskier. Yeah. Um, Why don't investors, do you think, I don't see a lot of people other than Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett like sort of talk about thinking in probabilities. Like everyone sort of talks about it right? because I think it sounds good. But no one actually like kind of gets, I mean, mm-hmm. we. I mean, obviously no one here knows but this. Um, when we meet Wednesday this week, we we're it was early in the morning. We were really uh, going yeah. over like all the probabilities mm-hmm. and like kind of you were breaking it all down. And so conceptually, I could understand what we were going over. Right. Well, what we were doing is, and this is an important concept. What we were doing is actually not what sort of people I think think when they talk about probabilities. So what people are, often seem to be saying is uh, almost the way that you do it in a class on probabilities, where you'd say, okay. So what's the chance that this will happen? And then what's the chance that this will happen? Yeah. Okay, multiply this one by this, this one by that, then we add them up, you know. It, that's not what we're doing. What we actually were doing is a reverse of that, which was saying the market prices something at a certain level. Roughly, what probability are they assigning with that price to these different events? And so what we were basically saying is, you think this stock is risky, okay. But at some price, it has to be attractive, right? Yeah, sure. So then let's just pick a price that's half of today's price. Let's check to see what the probabilities would have to be to say that this isn't attractive, you know, and do it that way. Um, the easiest are, like, sometimes I've written up things where I've said, look, there's some probability that something will happen with the stock. If nothing happens, the stock will do about as well as the market. If something happens, here's how big the upside could be. Yeah. You know, and you try to do it that way. And you say, okay, so you could make 50% because we can do that with the probabilities. Um, I don't know how big that probability is of that happening, but we know that you're not going to lose a lot. The hard ones, which is what we were talking about this past week, is the ones where you have to say, well, how big is the risk of zero? The, the one that I've talked about the most that way is Weight Watchers. Because Weight Watchers is a really good example of that. It got down to a price that was like, I don't know if it was $4 or something like that. Well, when I was talking to people about it, they were very worried that it would go bankrupt. Okay, But what they were really worried about is that the chance might be like 50-50. Right. And if the chance got to 50 50 to them, it was like, I have to sell this thing. Yeah. But there's a problem with that kind of thinking, which is that. And so I would ask them, you know, OK, well, the stock is at four, let's say if it goes to zero. OK, then you've lost everything. But if it doesn't go to zero, if it recovers for some reason, turned out it was Oprah. But if it recovers for some reason, what will it go to? We'll go to eight. Oh, definitely. eight. Yes. Sixteen. Probably. 
32? Yeah, I'd say 32 is the most likely, right? The stock's now gone up to, what, 80 or 70 yeah, or something uh-huh. at some point. But, th- but that's the kind of thing they were saying. Okay, well, now think about that. So what are the probabilities that we're saying the market is assigning to the fact that this company will go bankrupt? When they're saying, oh, I think the most likely price it would go to is, is 32, okay? Yeah. So what are we talking about? They were talking about uh, eight times the, uh, the, the, the current, current price, price yeah. right? Versus the fact that it goes to zero. And then you say, okay, well, now think about it as a probability. Well, then they look at it, what the probability says, and they say, oh, well, no, I'm not thinking that the default probability is almost certain. I was just thinking, I'm asking you, is it, is it 50-50? Yeah. Right? And so, and, and that happened a lot where people were like, so you're really confident this won't go bankrupt. That's why you're holding on. I said, no, I just can't sell it at four. Now, it went up to 17 or something, and then I felt I could sell it. Now, it went from 17 to 70. <laughs> so it doesn't mean it was a good decision. But what I meant is at, at even though it was risky at four, the price is too low. If I there's no probabilities I could come up with that in any way matched the certainty that the market would be putting on this is going bankrupt. But when you get up to a number that's you know four or five times that price, that really changes things. And then you're still concerned that it could go bankrupt. Then you can sell it, you know. Sure. And then that's what we mean by when we're talking about the probabilities that way. And I think the two things that people tend not to the sort of three things they tend not to assign it to right. So the three are one. Stock's risky, right? But they don't think it's going to go uh, broke today, Mm-mm. right? That's one that they have a problem with. Two, I think uh, it doesn't look like the stock's going to go up. But they, like, how, how do I put it? This, They don't think the chance is greater than 50% that some catalyst will happen immediately. So they undervalue the fact that a stock that seems like dead money might have something happen. And the last one is when it comes to the point where you're close to 50% chance that something's going to go under and soon they get to the point where they're like, well, it's worthless. Mm-hmm. And there's a big difference between something should be worth $8. and Something should be worth $0. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. But I don't see people incorporating into the write-up. So I don't know that. It's, that I was just say, what's, that this, what's this episode? Should we call this episode <laughs> probabilities? Uh, it's, I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing uh, it discussed there in yeah. some ways, although I would prefer it discussed in the way that I just talked about, which is okay. But no one really let's talks about it. Let's try to assign a, yeah. a, a ridiculous probability to it. And that's what I'm really talking about is, is not, oh, I think the chance is 55%. Yeah. But to say, okay, what if the chance was 90%? It still works out if there's a 90% chance the bad thing and you happens. Don't, you don't get into like, oh, it's probably 63% no. or 65%. Mm-hmm. What do you say about it? You say that you think you sort of think about like 90-10. Is that what you said before? Yeah, well, I mean, I've said I've definitely said before that I'm not sure that I could gauge the difference between 30 and 70. Yeah. So what I mean by that is when I say something like that, I'm thinking 50 plus or minus 20%. You know what I mean? I th- and I think it's true for a lot of people. You know, um, the, 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 the chance, the chance that it's a one in three chance of something happening and a two in three, I think people are often overconfident in, sure. in, in that way. Now I'm not sure they're overconfident. Uh, they might be overconfident, but I'm not sure that, that they aren't able to tell the difference between a 10% chance and a 90% chance, yeah. you know? And when you get numbers that are telling you that it has to be a 90% chance of something to justify this price, um, then that's when things get interesting. And then that's what I was saying. Like with a, with a catalyst, let, let's say that something could happen. The stock's a hundred dollars. Something could happen to cause it to go to 200. Even if there's only a 10% chance of that happening this year, people will say, well, that's just, that's not going to happen. There's, there's no catalyst and stuff. That actually is going to get you a return that if there's any underlying return in the business at all, will probably outperform the market this year. Sure. Yeah, right. So sense. it's just a 10% chance of a, you know, doubling or whatever. So buying something, a 50 cent dollar, as value investors say, if there's even a 10% chance that will happen this year, 
that actually would add so much to the to the value of of the stock in terms of what you would want to buy there. And you can see that if you put up together a portfolio of ten stocks, yeah. you put put together a portfolio of ten stocks that are all selling at half what they're worth. You'll find that every year something happens with one of them, and that's all you need to outperform. And yet, it seems that all something happening with any of them seems unlikely to you. And so you kind of discard the idea, you know. I don't see anything on the horizon. A lot of times people will say there's no catalyst, so let's just pass on this one. Yeah. And you got to try to think, okay, let me try to sign some probability to it, right? Wow. Yeah, I thought that was, that was <laughs> a really good point. Well, I mean, like what we were talking about, um, my biggest takeaway recently, and we were sort of mm-hmm. talking about this. I mean, I we've talked about it in the past too, but we are talking about a certain company where even if they did nothing for the next 10 years, right? you could still get a, a performance just from the free cash flow yield mm-hmm. of this business that's going to, because they have no debt as well and right. other things in the company or whatever, um, that was still going to be better than than the market, what we right. think what the market could be. Sure. So you had a lot of upside. And when you're thinking about like the probabilities with that of potentially not you know making money, but if you put together a portfolio of these types of companies exactly. where 10 years out, um, you know, even if the business does terrible or, or even if the company you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. do as good as you thought it would do. You could still make money. Well, that's a really interesting one because that one of the stocks we've been looking at is the one that it possibly the one or one of the top two or so that I think might have the highest expected return for us um, overall. But if you ask me what's the chance that it'll have the best return in any one year out of all the stocks that we consider, yeah. I'd say it's very low. Sure. I don't expect it to outperform in Which, any given year, yeah. but, but I expect that if you let all of them run for a while, the odds that this one will outperform the others over any given length of time once you've run for a while is actually really high. And and that's something that people may not um, realize when we get, that's getting deep into probability things, but the, just the chance that something could outperform on average over five or 10 years without actually being the best performer of a group of five or six things in any one year. And that's a common one with with really good investment performances that we talk about when we talk about Buffett and things like that. If you put a list of the best investors up, uh, he would not be topping it in most years that were even his best streak of years. Uh-huh. But over a decade, he would be. Yeah, and, and you certainly know. over more. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that's an issue that we get into with the difference between uh, thinking geometrically about it and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, which is, I guess, some of what the memo was about. Yeah. <laughs> wow. What a great discussion. <laughs> <laughs> and so informed about stock write-ups. Should we name it uh, stock write-ups or probability? <laughs> stock write-ups and probability. Yeah, half stock write-ups, half probability. That sounds great. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening and tuning in with us here today. Um, we did talk about a memo. If you do want to get on that list to get a free memo from Jeff every Sunday, go to focuscompound.com and be sure, uh, just put in your email. You'll see that on the homepage at the top, and that will put you on our list, and we will get that memo to you um, every Sunday morning. I'd say there's a 50-50 chance it'll be the morning. Yeah. We, we say morning, but that's the expectation. But <laughs> there's a good chance sometimes. it will be a Sunday. Yeah, sometimes. Anyways, we want to thank everybody for tuning in. Have a great day. We'll see you in the next podcast. Take care.